0: What did Holiness and Pentecostal pastors have to say about participation in World War I? What scriptures did they use? What did they think was ultimately behind the Great War? I'm Dennis Metzler and you're watching The Charge. Jay Beeman and Brian K. Pipkin have done a great service to humanity in providing through their book Pentecostal and Holiness Statements on War and Peace, the crucial documentation which expresses the views on participation in war for many early holiness and Pentecostal denominations. It is a little known fact that the vast majority of early Pentecostal denominations prohibited killing in war. This information is therefore much needed in a day when so many leaders and parishioners in these traditions have no knowledge of these particular biblical and ethical roots and simply follow the way of the world, first offering themselves and then their sons and now daughters to the militarists of the day, who constantly find new wars to wage, always engaged in deception to gain public support. Others may have a more optimistic view of war. Still, if pacifism is the one true expression of Christ in regard to war, then we have here in Kirgan's writing a stirring indictment of any Christian participation in any war. But if just war better expresses the heart of Jesus and the Holy Spirit actually leads us to kill in some wars, then the following should be taken only to apply to those wars which do not meet all the criteria for a just war. This is the setting. In 1915, with World War I well underway, but the United States not entering until 1917, A. M. Kerrigan of The Church of God, Fort Scott, Kansas, pulls no punches as he emotively declares his total opposition to war for the follower of Christ. The following is an excerpt from War. What for? Just now and hence, those who love God and their fellow man should pray, take heed, and be on our guard lest we be carried away by a godless enthusiasm for flags, patriotism, and business. The largest element of such enthusiasm is the rankest fanaticism. War is fanaticism and anarchy. A false idea of duty will be fatal and plunge us into bloody conflict when our hands will be red with the blood of our fellow man. There is a higher duty than anything proposed or maintained by war, duty to God and our fellow man. And this first and higher duty, if the other be a duty at all, is anti-war, is forever at war with war. If you look a little deeper, you will likely discover that the glorification of flags, the beating of drums, and cheers to patriotism is but to inflame the baser heart with a bloody sentiment while the real intent not seen by the excited multitude who are expected to expose their breasts to the crash of cold steel is adroitly concealed. War is for greed. Business. At the bottom of all wars is the love of power. Greed. Business. Gain. All of which is absolutely unworthy and unchristian. Kierkegaard cites James 4 too, You fight and war and kill. Plainly stated, you murder. Any attempt to smooth murder out of killing in war is futile if James is to be accepted as authority. If what he says is to be scouted, then let us be sincere and throw the whole New Testament away. John Sherman said war is hell. James said, War is murder. Christ said, Put up thy sword. John said, If anyone kills with a sword, with the sword he must be killed. Kierkegaard continues, If war is right, if it is a good thing to be indulged in, if killing men is good for men and glorifying to God, if it conduces to the advancement of morality and civilization, then what is to be thought of the mission of Jesus Christ? At his advent at Bethlehem, the angels sang, Peace on earth, goodwill among men. What becomes of the commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves? And what becomes of the golden rule? All things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them? Mark you, it is to apply in all all things. Do you want men to shoot you down in battle, thrust cold steel through your bowels, blow you to atoms with dynamite, make your wife a widow and your babies orphans and send them to starvation and the potter's field? Do you want men to make a hell on earth for you? Well, no, not exactly. Your better sense and feeling justify the angel song and the golden rule. Can we set it not the golden rule and lay any claims to be Christians? It must be a strange infatuation that under any pretext whatsoever anyone would volunteer to shoot down his fellow man in war. And stranger still that any follower of the Christ of Peace and anyone whose heart is touched with the spirit of peace over whom the dove of peace should hover evermore could ever bring himself to such forgetful, fanatical frenzy as to do it. Strange." End quote. Let's take a closer look at what Kierkegaard is arguing for. First off, he contrasts the core ideology of war with the core of Christian thinking and living. The God of war is lifted up by the twin pillars of nationalism and profiteering, stopping at nothing to advance his bloody purposes. But the triune God of Scripture calls us to love God and love all people, even our enemies. Kierkegaard vehemently rails against the godless enthusiasm for flags, patriotism and business. Any sense of duty that compels us to kill our fellow man is ultimately idolatrous and comes from our baser nature. Rather, our Christian duty is to love our fellow humans, even those who oppose us with violence. The duty to kill according to the dictates of our nation and the gospel mandate to love are therefore thoroughly at odds with each other. To Kierkegaard. War is ultimately an expression of anarchy and fanaticism and therefore the believer must be at war with war. But Kierkegaard's most stinging rebuke is reserved for the power elites who are never satisfied and constantly strive after more political and more economic power. They deceive the masses into thinking their causes for the good and protection of the nation. But Their sole motivation is pure, cold greed. For Kirgan, this is at the heart of the why of war in general, and it is absolutely against the cause of Christ. Certainly, there are other causes and justifications for war, but political and economic avarice is where Kirgan hammers hard. Kierkegaard uses James 4.2 to demonstrate that killing in war is the moral equivalent of murder. For him, there is no diminishing the evil of killing in war by justifying it as defensive. His reading of James will be disputed by many scholars who will see killing and wars as hyperbole. Early Pentecostals were not strong in biblical scholarship yet, They were amazingly faithful in obeying the core commands of Scripture. Even though his interpretation of this verse may come up short, this nonetheless reveals how committed these early Pentecostals were to pacifism, seeing the prohibition against war in the Bible wherever they could. At any rate, James clearly portrays killing, battles, and wars as destructive. And, though his use of terms may not be literal, James backs up Kierkegaard as he traces a direct line from greed and coveting to actual violence and war. According to Kierkegaard, if we reject what James speaks as authoritatively against war, then the whole New Testament should be rejected. Kierkegaard leads us into considering the implications of any sort of pro-war stance for a Christian. His question, if we are to believe that participating in war is somehow good and right and moral and pleasing to God, then how are we to understand the mission and message of Christ, particularly the injunction to do unto others? Here is where Kirgan's prophetic prose shines rich and colorful. Do you want men to thrust cold steel through your bowels? He stresses the obvious. If we don't want people to destroy our lives, then we should not destroy theirs. From Jesus, this golden rule is the most basic clue as to how we are to live our lives. Not just when things are going well, but especially when in the midst of conflict. The world says, do unto others before they do unto you. But Christ calls his followers to set an example by loving their enemies hoping for the transformation of the enemy, but ultimately trusting God for any outcome. If we are to call ourselves Christians, we must abide by the teachings and commands of Jesus, period. Kirgan is baffled by the strangeness of any man willfully shooting down his fellow man in war. Much more is Kirgan perturbed that a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit of peace and follows Jesus the Prince of Peace could intentionally obliterate the life of another man. Clearly, Kirgan is not here interested in presenting an incisive and nuanced rationale for his anti-war stance, nor weighing in on the pacifism versus just war debate, nor carefully explaining the teachings and example of Christ and applying them to modern-day conflict. Instead, He comes out swinging with vivid imagery and visceral language, drawing his readers into what should self-evidently be the gross incompatibility of killing other humans and living as a disciple of Christ. Kierkegaard does focus on wars fought merely for political and economic gain. He does not address the possibility of warring against tyrannical and genocidal powers for purely defensive reasons. One wonders how Kirgan would have addressed Christian participation in World War II. Still, the powers that be are so adept at convincing the populace that each new war is the moral equivalent of fighting the Nazis. Kierkegaard's forthright and impassioned denunciation of Christian participation in war is an example for us today. There is always a need for strong language, definitive proclamation, and rousing exhortation on this topic. We need to be able to carefully examine every detail of the debate concerning Christian views on war and peace in the most magnanimous way, yet, we also need to courageously declare without hesitation the gospel of peace wherever the culture of death reigns. I'm Dennis Metzler, and you've been listening to The Charge. I've got a lot more podcasts, so please check them out. Peace to everyone.